stress, anxiety, and depression are skyrocketing among children and teens. And Cook Children's Healthcare System is on a mission to bring these topics into the light. I'm Winnie King. And I'm Dr. Kristen Perch. If you have kiddos in the room, now is the time to put on those headphones. Some of the topics we'll be discussing will not be suited for young ears. This is Raising Joy. Hi, and welcome back to Raising Joy. I'm Kristen Perch. I'm a child psychiatrist. I cook children's. And I'm Winnie King, and I'm a child. (laughs) You are not. And I'm a child. (laughs) You are not a child. Um, I know our listeners are gearing up for spring break. Wow. Wow. Can you believe it's here? I'm glad, finally, yes. Are you going somewhere? I sure am. I'm going to go join um, some of my family in South Carolina in Hilton Head. And then then maybe do a little Savannah and a little... Oh, I love Savannah. Okay, we'll have to talk. Oh, it's so quaint. I can't wait. Any tour, just a tour. A tour of the cemeteries. Okay. I mean... But I have my kids with me. I don't want to traumatize them. Okay. (laughs) It's just a, a really, really cute. Quaint. We'll do okay. We'll do cemeteries in the daytime. Yeah. Oh, or yeah. Or just like you know a drive by. And I think they do. Stage. I think they have tours, if I'm not mistaken, because it's been a long time since I've been there. But I think they do a real tour. Yeah. Yeah. Of of cemeteries. I'm, it's a lot. It's a I, lot. I'm excited. Um, I, I'm just excited. I need a break. Yeah. It's time. I do too. Um, but I have you know honestly, I haven't been on a trip since. Right before the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. I went to South Africa, and I got back the week things shut down. Wow. And I haven't been anywhere. Well, I say anywhere. I've, I've gone to my sisters in Oklahoma, and, I don't, you know, that really doesn't count. But I haven't done anything. I haven't gone anywhere. But I am planning a trip this summer. Where are you going? Going to Paris and London. <gasps> and my, me and my sister were going to go, and I'm just so excited. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited. I've never been to London, never I passed through Paris, never never got to sit down and you know, try the food. I'm ready. I am so ready, but that's I can't not wait. until the summer, but I'll send you with my shopping list. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I can't afford anything in Paris. Who are we kidding? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, we have an incredible guest on the show today. Um and unfortunately, we're talking about my greatest fear and I'm sure that mm. of a lot of parents. Yep. Um and so something that we hope we never ever 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 have to experience um and that's school shootings. Yeah. This this thing about schools and shootings and mass shootings it's it's a lot it, it's really a lot in number it's a lot in topic it's a lot to to unpack it's all it's you know and it seems like it's happening every week yes. somewhere yeah it's happening a lot so anyway joining us today is um dr jillian peterson a forensic psychiatrist psychologist Psychologist, yes, thank you. Uh, professor of criminology and the author of Violence Project: How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Welcome to Raising Joy, Dr. Peterson. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, we're talking about raising joy, but we need to raise some. We need to raise some information, you know, yeah. and some some awareness about. Um, about your research. You've done quite a bit of research on mass shootings. What is something that you think parents and others in the community should know about mass shooters, the people who actually perpetrate uh, these activities? Uh, what makes them do what they do? Yeah, so I did about a five 
year research study. It involved building a huge database of about 200 different perpetrators of mass shootings going back 50 years, coding them on about 150 different life history pieces of information, also interviewed perpetrators themselves who were incarcerated, interviewed their families and people who knew them to really try to understand what makes somebody do this and how they get to that point and what this pathway to violence looks like. And the there was a number of things that kind of surprised me. I will say I walked away from this project feeling hopeful, oh, feeling good. like these are not inevitable, good. feeling like we can do things to really prevent this. Um, school shooters in particular, they tend to be young white male students of the school. They are insiders. These are kids at the school going in and out of security, running through the lockdown drills with everybody else. They are kids in crisis. They are kids who are suicidal. So mass shootings and school shootings are suicides in addition to being homicides. Oftentimes they've been radicalized online and kind of tumbled down the rabbit hole. They see themselves in the perpetrators who come before them and they wanna kind of be a part of that group. And then they typically take their guns from their homes. Typically it's unsecured firearms. Wow. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. Radicalized. Help me with that. Yeah, we call it, in our book, we call it social proof. It's kind of these, it starts off as this kind of self-hate, self-loathing. These are young boys who are maybe not getting out of life what they thought they were going to get, who feel rejected, who feel lonely, who feel unseen, um, hopeless, suicidal. And somehow they find validation for this idea that violence like this is going to bring them attention. It's going to make people see them, right? It is sort of an answer. It's a way to get their grievance out to the world and sort of make everybody suffer like they're suffering. And so a lot of them spend time in chat rooms or on social media. A lot of them go back and study even as far back as Columbine is really common, um, reading through previous manifestos and really identifying with these previous perpetrators. Oof. That's a lot. It is. That's a lot. Oh my gosh. As a psychiatrist, I have, you know, is I, I think a lot of people say for anyone to do that, they must have a mental illness, like something is going on there. Did that, did you find that in the research or uh, what, what, what'd you see? You know, it's a really complicated question and answer, right? <laughs> and actually yes. it's what initially drew me into this work. Cause my background is in understanding the link between mental illness and violence. And, you know, it was brought up all the time in the public discourse around mass shootings. And when I went to see you know, what percentage of perpetrators have a diagnosis, I couldn't find it. And it's actually the question that started this entire project. So we looked really closely at this. We looked at who had previous diagnoses, who had previous hospitalizations, counseling, psychiatric medication. If you kind of collapse that all together, it's about two thirds of the sample has some sort of mental health history. That's higher than the general population, but not actually that much higher, which it's like 50% in the general population. But we don't see any specific diagnosis, right? It's not that perpetrators are responding to some set of symptoms. What you see is that for each person, mental health is a piece of a complex story. 
And I do agree that nobody who's sort of mentally healthy and thriving commits a mass shooting, but that could be because you're lonely or because you're living in a traumatic household or because you just got rejected from a relationship or lost your job, or it could be because you're experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, What we really find is most predictive is suicidality and being in a noticeable crisis. And those two things are not necessarily connected to any sort of list of symptoms or a formal diagnosis. So those, so being in a noticeable crisis and being suicidal were, you were saying they're higher. I mean, like they're significantly higher than the general population. So those are kind of, and those are psychiatric symptoms, but don't necessarily fit in like a specific disorder. Exactly. Yes. So when it comes to school shooters, over 90% of them have previous suicide attempts or are actively suicidal, and 100% of them are in a noticeable crisis in the days and weeks leading up. Wow. Okay. How do I see him? I mean, okay. He's walking down the street. How do I see him? How? Uh, I mean, how do I pinpoint? Oh, there he is. I can tell. That's him. How do I see it? Yeah. I mean, sadly, we can't, right? We can't. I wish you know, I had some sort of checklist that you go through and say, okay, here's the next school shooter. We can't, we don't know that. What we can do with this research is we've identified a common pathway to violence that perpetrators tend to go through. Typically starts with really significant early childhood trauma, a Mm -hmm. lot of violence in the home, developing into this crisis point, this suicidality, having violence validated, having access to a weapon. For school shooters, over 90% of them leak their plans. So leakage is what we refer to as telling somebody else you're going to do this. Mm. And they typically tell their classmates. Mm. So we've had cases where 50 kids knew it was going to happen and nobody reported. So for us, leakage is the really critical time for intervention. Anytime somebody is talking about thinking about a school shooting, we need to take that really seriously. The problem is how we currently respond to that is typically we suspend the student, we expel more and more, we arrest and criminally charge them for telling people about these plans. When the reality is, this is a person saying, I'm in crisis, I don't care if I live or die. This is my last ditch cry for help. You say it out loud because part of you wants to be stopped. And Mm -hmm. so we need to be kind of pulling these kids in and getting them resources. Mm Wow. Okay. And, you know, at Cook Children's and the Center for Children's Health, we talk a lot about ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. Um, And your research tells us that um, you have found about a role of the ACEs that, and that's kind of what you're talking about, is that they've had these issues, but we all have them, but they're having them too. And they're just reacting to them differently, I guess. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the vast, vast majority of people who experience traumatic childhoods um, are incredibly resilient and recover and go on to leave productive lives. But we know that ACEs are predictive of all sorts of Mm -hmm. um, kind of bad outcomes later in life, if not addressed and not treated, and if you don't have good coping mechanisms. And that's what we see here. And it's not to say that, you know, this early childhood trauma makes somebody into a mass shooter. It really just kind of lays this foundation. And we're talking about typically sexual abuse, physical abuse, mm. parental suicide was actually so common that we had to add a column into our database what? about it. I mean, this is really significant stuff in the first five years of life that's not addressed that kind of is the early foundation for this pathway. Mm. And if you think about it, right, like those those things in in particular, like those 
in like in a young child's mind, that's so impressionable. Whenever things are difficult to deal with, I respond with violence, right? Like, so, or I respond, like, I'm, you know, like I can't deal with life and I'm going to kill myself or like I, you know, I'm acting out in these ways. And so I think it just kind of lays a foundation. It's really hard. I, I had a question uh, going back to kind of my thought on, so my first, not my first, but I think the first time a school shooting really, really, really hit home for me. I mean, it's happened a lot, but having to send your own child to school whenever there was a shooting within driving distance is, is a new experience. Um, and it was very difficult for me, um, as I'm sure it was for very many mm-hmm, parents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that was what happened in Uvalde. And then reading about the experience of the shooter and sort of the things that he had gone through in his life very much mirror what your research showed. And as a psychiatrist, I thought this sounds like a lot of kids that I have seen either on the inpatient unit or in um or or in my office. And so I I just felt like and he didn't have any mental health diagnoses that I remember coming to light and I just know the state of mental health treatment in Texas and how hard it is to find. And so I was wondering, did he have diagnoses? He just didn't have access to resources. And so I think that that is a huge gap, you know, and I, I just kind of wondered, like, could that be a confounding factor of why some of people don't have, they, they don't have mm-hmm. access to resources to get to diagnosis, right? right? So right. did am I just talking crazy or? No, that's absolutely true. You know, one group that I have spent a lot of time with is actually mothers of perpetrators. I've probably interviewed seven or eight mothers of perpetrators um, who carry just enormous Mm -hmm. amounts of guilt. But I would say the most common thread that I hear is that I kind of knew something was wrong with my kid. I just didn't know what to do or where to go Mm -hmm. for help um, or who to ask or. And so I think that is a true gap. Um, one of the questions we would always ask perpetrators when we interviewed them in prison is, is there anything or anyone that could have stopped you? And all of the time, 100% of the time, they said yes. Um, one of them even said, I think anyone could have probably stopped me, but there was literally no one. So these are individuals that are very isolated mm-hmm. with not a lot of touch points. And when we think about prevention, I think we can think about these sort of big level, you know, we need access to mental health resources, but at the same time, a lot of times when these shootings get stopped, it's just a human connection, right? It, it could mm-hmm. be a psychiatrist, but it could be the school lunch lady, you know, yes. who's able to sort of connect and ask questions and see this kid and check in with them. And so when we talk about prevention, a lot of this is like training all of ourselves in crisis intervention and suicide prevention. And how do we make those connections with young people who are in crisis? Wow. I love that. Wow. And I, I think that kids being disconnected is also what we talk about so much and like feeds so much into depression and they're on their device. I mean, the kids are disconnected. Like, I think that that's why they're having such a hard time. And they, yeah. I think that lots of people care about kids, but it's hard they may not know. And especially Mm. if they're depressed, they may not be aware. Mm. What's your message to parents who are listening to this? You talked about spending a lot of time with these mothers who are probably just guilt ridden. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you say to to parents who are looking at their teenager 
son or the teacher who has to sit in the classroom with these kids. What are you telling them? Yeah, I mean, it's so difficult. And we we kind of think of mass shootings as another form of death of despair. And we're seeing these increases in mm-hmm. suicide and drug overdoses and deaths related to alcohol. I think mass shootings maps onto that. We don't see it that way, though, right? We tend to think of that as these just sort of dangerous monsters coming out of nowhere and attacking our children. And so we have to sort of put armed guards up and big security and run through these drills when the reality is Mm. the person who does this is a young kid in that school that you see every Every single day. day. And that means that we can notice though. It means it's harder to prevent in some ways because we can't lock these bad guys out, but it's easier to prevent in some ways because we can notice changes in behavior. That's the biggest thing. You're looking for marked changes in this kid's behavior. And then you want to intervene, not because you're worried he's going to be a school shooter, but because this is somebody in crisis and you want to be able to connect and figure out what's going on. So I'm a huge advocate for building systems in schools where people can report their concern. And then those teams investigate and connect with that kid, not because he's a threat that they want to arrest, but because it's a kid in crisis in their community that they want to connect with whatever resources that they need. I I like that idea. Mm -hmm. I like that because what I don't want is for the teacher to have to do yet one more thing that they have to pay attention. They've got to teach the kids. They've got to do all of this and they've got to really be the the source of, of trying to, you know, stop this. But you get other folks involved and it takes the pressure off of the teacher who is expected to know all and do all. And you you just don't want that. And I love the idea of having other kids, the, the teenagers in the school involved, find out who these, you know, who, who are the disconnects. But boy, that's a lot. It is a lot. And I think that assessment, I, I agree with you on like what you were saying about like not putting on more thing. That's a very nuanced uh, mm-hmm. assessment mm-hmm. on a threat assessment of a kid because mm-hmm. you don't want to just label and reject and expel a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Because they made an, were frustrated and made an offhand comment. Right. Um, that's happened to several of my patients, right? And they end up in juvenile hall and like mm-hmm. that was not helpful for them. I mean, I but I also understand this, the, the role of the school and the other parents who are concerned about this kid that comes to school and is making a bomb threat, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's a very delicate issue, but it has to have a really nuanced assessment to figure out how to actually help the kid. But I love that you are, um, Dr. Peterson, identifying that the more we kind of demonize these kids and say they're other than, we don't figure out how to actually fix the problem, Right. Um, which is connection. So right. I, I think I'm like applauding you over mm. here. <laughs> like I, You're brilliant in my book. Brilliant. <laughs> Love it. (laughs) And in many ways, like when we do demonize and we push kids out, we are not getting rid of the risk. You know, like there are many kids who after they're expelled, come back and commit a school shooting. We are increasing the crisis. We are adding air to this already full balloon, right? We're intensifying the grievance. We're making kids angrier. And what we need to be doing is pulling them in, right? Mm -hmm. Mm De-escalating, letting air out of the balloon, reconnecting. But a lot of that pressure on schools does come from scared parents. And I'm one myself. I have three elementary school age kids. Mm. And I get that, right? If there's a threat in your school, you're like, arrest that kid and get him out of there. Mm -hmm. But I think we all have to think, okay, actually, 
the safest thing that we can do is pull this kid in and try to wrap him in rather than push him out. Yeah, that's fascinating. You were you were here in Fort Worth recently. Tell us about what that was what that was like and what you did. Yes, I was there day before yesterday um, in the middle of a rainstorm, and it was <laughs> oh, a no. room with about 300 people in it oh. um, in Fort Worth with Tarrant County. So it was mental health professionals, it was police officers, it was school teachers and principals, it was community members, it was council members, it was all these people from all these different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And we actually assigned tables so that you were sitting with people from all these different perspectives that you didn't know. Um, And we spent a half day, so it was a four hour workshop where we went through all of the data that we found on mass shootings and perpetrators, what we know about prevention and what that can look like. We did some training and crisis intervention, building crisis response teams, and really started, I think, some long-term conversations about how do we build connections between these different systems so that we're communicating with each other, how do we shift our perspective so that we're not pushing kids out, but pulling them in? How do we know what to look for? It was a really incredibly powerful day. Mm, 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 mm. What what sort of, pass me the baton. So pass us the baton. <laughs> like what what sort of things can we help? Like yes. what can we push forward? Because we're, we're on board. Like right, I, we're right, on board right. with your message. Yeah, and obviously- yeah. Every parent is distressed about school shootings and sending their kids to school and what's the risk. And it doesn't matter where they go to school. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a good school, private school. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can't homeschool my kids. So what 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 passes the baton? What, what, what do, do we, we do? do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it is about recognizing that this is all of our responsibility and there are things that we can each do individually. I think a lot of times it's like, well, it's up to Congress and they failed. So there's nothing that can be done. But what we find is that you can build a lot of these systems within schools, within workplaces, hospitals, community centers, churches. How do we report when we're worried about somebody? And then how do we connect with that person and see what's going on? That's really all it is. And who's the person whose job it is, who's going to go connect with that individual and then continually follow up with them. Um, So it's about, I think, being unafraid to sort of dive into hard conversations, mm. being willing to ask hard questions about suicide and about violence and being willing to hear those answers and not being afraid of them. Um, and then having communication systems so that we know where to refer kids mm. um, when they need to be referred. A lot of this is stuff that I think we do every day. When a school shooting happens, we often find that it's like, 10 different people were holding one piece of the puzzle, but nobody actually put it together. And once you put it together, it was quite obvious that something was very wrong, but we just didn't have those systems to communicate in place. So, you know, and you didn't read, and I'm sorry, you didn't research all shootings, mass shootings. You just, you researched the school shootings. Cause I'm wondering if the other mass shootings are, you know, similar, if, you know, Me going to the grocery store and some guy comes in with a shotgun, is that similar to what we're dealing with at the the school? I know the school is easier to handle. It's not easier, but it's it's a focus that you can really, you know, go into. But the rest of it, it almost sounds like they're all kind of in that same vein. 
It is. So we studied all forms of mass shootings, actually, any public mass shootings. So schools, it tends to be kids at the school, college and universities, it's students at that college and university, um, factories, warehouses, workplaces, office buildings, it's employees of that site, typically who are fired and then come back and commit a shooting. Churches are oftentimes members of the congregation for those we tend to see two types of things. Sometimes we see a religious hate driven mm -hmm. mass shooting. And mm -hmm. then sometimes we see what we call domestic spillage where a guy comes in to target his wife or partner knowing that she'll be at church and unprotected. Yeah. Um, and then sort of keeps firing. But the hardest ones are these kind of retail restaurants. They are the ones that are actually on the rise the most sort of supermarkets and retail establishments. Since the pandemic, the perpetrators have been very young, like 18 to 20 year old young men. To, and we're seeing these are, you know, young men who went, you know, to school online through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Many of them are on their 18th birthday going out and buying an AR-15 and committing this type of shooting. And if we look at like the Buffalo yeah. grocery store shooter. Yeah. He was someone when he was graduating, a teacher asked him what he was going to do after graduation. He said, I'm going to commit a murder suicide. That's what he said. And then he went and did it just a couple months later. Wow. So again, we see this same leakage. What I don't think we figured out how to do very well is how do we capture this kind of 18 to 21 year old mm -hmm. who's maybe not in college, not employed, right? Like what are the resources that we have to connect those individuals. Right. And they're online going down those rabbit holes and being, as you said, ra radicalized. Yeah. Um, yes. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. We got to get our boys in line. Come I on. <laughs> Let's, we we, we, we got to figure this out. We need that, to go to the military or something. I, 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 I don't well, know. So, Dr. Peterson, you said that you, I, I was intrigued. You said that in doing this research, it made you hopeful. Yes. I was really glad to hear that. Yes. Um, so talk to us about that, please. Give us, <laughs> give us more hope. <laughs> please. You know, um, I didn't know what I was going to find, especially when we reached out to all these perpetrators for interviews. Um, but a number of them told us their entire life history and... Um, and similar with like moms that I talked to and all these people that you talked to, you suddenly see these individuals who have done these horrific things and caused so much harm, but you see them as people, right? You see them as four-year-olds and then 10-year-olds and then 12-year-olds. And mm -hmm. it's like, how do we, and they weren't born on this world to do this, right? They started out as these innocent kids who then got into this pathway and you could see all the different points that if something had gone differently, this mm. kid wouldn't have ended up here, right? It's not that they were so committed to this that there was no other option. It's something that, like some of them said, anyone could have stopped me, right? It was a moment that they needed to get through or it was a crisis that they needed some guidance getting through. So it did feel like if these are the worst of the worst people who have done these awful, awful things, and they could have been stopped, right? They're not at their core awful. These are, we can interrupt this pathway. It felt less of like just an inevitable mess and more that if we can see this pathway to violence, we can build off ramps and get people off of that pathway. Um, so I did walk away feeling like it was a problem 
that could be stopped. It wasn't impossible. It wasn't something that we just have to accept as part of kind of American childhood or American culture, which feels a little bit like mm-hmm. what we've done. Mm-hmm. It's 100%. something that we can say, this is just absolutely not okay. And we're going to throw every resource we can to stopping it. What are those things? You mentioned um, increasing communication between like school officials, you know, law enforcement, Mm-hmm. So, like, what are what are kind of those things? Like, well, how do we how do we help turn? How do the we tide? create that off ramp? Mm-hmm. Yes. What are the what are yeah, where so are the off ramps? The book identified over thirty different prevention strategies. None of them perfect, right? All of them have problems. Mm-hmm. We use the Swiss cheese model, so it's mm-hmm. you have all these solutions that have holes in them, but when you start layering them on top of each other, they start getting covered up. So, because a solution is imperfect, that doesn't mean we don't do it. It mm-hmm. just means yes. we do mm-hmm. more imperfect right. solutions all at once. Yes. So you can start early on the pathway thinking about early childhood trauma, especially for young boys teaching social emotional learning, teaching coping mechanisms, universal trauma screening in schools to, you know, make sure people don't slip through the cracks, mentorship. Mm. Um, when it comes to being in crisis, I mean, we, we know a lot about suicide prevention and what works. If you don't want to die, you don't do a mass shooting, right? Like they are designed to be final acts. Mm -hmm. So as long as we can give people hope, train people in suicide prevention, train people in crisis intervention, build anonymous reporting systems, build crisis response teams, and then things like school-based mental health or easily accessible community-based mental health becomes really important there. We can think about holding social media companies more accountable Mm. for what happens on their platforms Mm -hmm. with hateful rhetoric and Mm. radicalization, you know, think everything up to easily accessing a firearm. And we really are focused on things like safe storage, right? Where it's just lock up your guns so that your kids can't access them. And all of those (laughs) things, they have a diffusion of benefits, right? It might prevent a mass shooting, but it might prevent an accidental shooting or a suicide or domestic violence or mm-hmm. all sorts of things. These aren't just practices that are going to have a multitude of good outcomes. And some sillies on Twitter will say things like, oh, well, if they want, then they'll just grab it. And, and exactly. They'll just get a knife if they want it. But yeah, it's like, yeah. OK, folks, yeah. like stop being so obtuse. Yeah. Like you you like you said, it's a Swiss cheese model. It's and not just, perfect, but we got to do something. All of the things yeah, to help prevent it. it. And yeah. and it's like we're not – chances are in America we're never going to get to zero, right? But, like, let's get to less than what we have now, please, for the love of right. all things. Like, we are all so tired and mm-hmm. so traumatized and mm-hmm. tired of having mm-hmm. to send our kids mm-hmm. to school mm-hmm. and worry mm-hmm. if they're going to come home. Like, I am – yes. Anyway, I've considered moving. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell my boss. <laughs> This was this was fascinating. And what impactful work. What impactful yes. work. Thank I mean, you, you know, you're you. you're actually coming up with the formula and you you've 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 identified the ingredients and you've laid it out for us and now we got to just go and do it. I love it. I I, do I, too. I appreciate your perspective. I appreciate um so I as a psychiatrist, I um I work with the kids who are like flipping tables in classrooms Mm. and are identified as the problem children Mm. um, in a lot of ways and who act out in these ways, calling in bomb threats, those sorts of things. Right. And um, I have a connection with most of my patients and I see the human side like you do, Dr. Peterson. And so I was, 
and it, it's hard for me, right? Because I understand the trauma that the kid flipping the table inflicts on all the other seven-year-olds in the classroom. Mm. But if that seven-year-old who's flipping the tables doesn't have their needs met, they will find other ways to get it done. And so if we don't see them as human yeah, yeah. and if we don't, and we're just expelling them and sending them out, like it's not going to get fixed. And, and so, but I think it's hard to make that case because people are, and I understand because I have a kid in the classroom that's not flipping the tables. Yeah, and so yeah, I don't yeah. want her to be that. I don't want yeah, her to be, go to yeah. school and be scared. Yeah. But it's, it's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. You, it's hard having that nuanced uh, viewpoint when you have a kid in the classroom too. Yeah. <laughs> but when you see a kid at seven year old, at seven, and they're flipping over tables. Yeah, that happens a lot. I'm, yikes. That's a sign. I know. That's a signal. I know. That's a red flag flying. I know. But but I, I just appreciate Dr. Peterson I, saying. I, I do too. Identifying the humanity in it. Right. Exactly. Find that. And let's and make a connection. Let's make a connection. With, and help the kiddo. And help the parents. They're trying. They're doing the best they can. Yes. Single mothers doing the best you can. You yes. know, you got to put food on the table. You got to keep a roof over the head. And now we've got this little boy that's running around and he's flipping over tables. Yeah. Let's help her. Yes. Let's help her. And we're not diminishing. Right. School shootings. And we're not diminishing no, the behavior. No. But it's a cry for help, I think is what we're and and, and, and we And if we could start it sooner, then he won't be 16, 17, 18 years old. 100%. You know. Right. Scaring everybody. Lord of mercy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Dr. Peterson, tell us about your book. Yeah, I'm, the book is yes. called The Violence Project, How I'm to going Stop to a get Mass it Shooting today. Epidemic. And it's based on all the research that we've done, the data. It includes a lot of interviews with perpetrators themselves in their own words, um, interviews with moms and kind of really tells this story in a really compelling way. And the last chapter of the book is called Hope, where it kind of brings all this together. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Tell me the title one more time so I can write it down. The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. It, it okay. was in the beginning of the thing I, I okay see I, I already have notes but see i need it for my amazon search right <laughs> okay. now because I, I said it earlier when she i introduced her but uh, somebody wasn't listening but that's okay <laughs> hi it's me i'm the problem it's me um dr peterson so we have a um a tradition at the end of every episode we share something we're grateful for um so i am grateful for you seeing the humanity in mm, people who mm. are um demonized not with the purpose to excuse what they do, but to understand to prevent it from happening again. So yeah. huge kudos to you. Like yeah. I, like you were doing the hard work and I'm so grateful for your brilliance and your compassion. So that's my, okay. that's and what I'm, I'm grateful I'm for. I'm sorry. I'm just going to ditto. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to ditto. I really am because, I mean, you have laid it all out and I'm going to get the book. I, I need, and I don't even have a teenage kid anywhere close, but I want to, I want to understand it. I really do. Cause just sitting and watching TV and watching it on the news, you know, and I thought, you know, after Sandy Hook, I thought, mm -hmm. no, yep. oh, no, this will never happen again. Yep. This will never, ever happen again. But, you know, by golly, it has happened again and again and again and again. And so it's time for somebody to step in, uh, you know, some people to step in, whatever I can do. I, I really want to get to that last chapter. And see, you know, even as I who don't have children, well, I have an adult child, but adult, but I mean, what can I do? What can I do in this community, um, in my sphere, in my workplace? 
to try and figure out who these people are and what can I do to help? How can I help them? Um, how can I notice them? Yeah. Dr. Peterson, what are you grateful for? I am really grateful that you are willing to have this conversation and to any of your listeners who didn't turn it off when they heard my tears <laughs> and kind of stayed and listened to the whole thing, because I find that after something like a Uvalde, I'll get a thousand calls in, you know, 48 hours, mm-hmm. yeah. but then yeah. we don't, it fades it away and down. we don't want to yep. talk it any, about it anymore because yep. it's not front of mind. And we need to be having these conversations in when it's not an immediate aftermath, yeah. we need to be talking about prevention when we're not so upset and overwhelmed that we can't move. And so, um, thank you for having me here and for covering a really difficult topic, but one that I think we just have to keep talking about. Yeah, I agree. You're amazing. Thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening and sticking around. <laughs> I know. So Dr. Peterson, we have a podcast called Raising Joy, but we are always lamenting that we don't raise joy. We just raise a lot of problems and <laughs> we, <laughs> issues. But our but our, our tagline is like bringing uh, things into the light, which yes. I think we're incredibly good at. Yes. Um, yes. And then so hopefully that the long term, the last chapter is joy, but yeah. we're not there yet. We're, we're going to get there. We're going we're to get there. there. And until next time, just breathe. Open up. You matter.